This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. We talk about inspiration a lot here on Revision Path. So I asked John Lax, Director of Product Design at Facebook, what inspires him? I, at the end of the day, I love making things that people will use. And I always want to try to create something that's usable and useful for someone out in the world. And everything I do, I do through that lens. If we can also make something that's beautiful, that's also, as well as being usable and useful, that's where it really, that really inspires me. So being able to bring usable, useful, and beauty together is what I'm always trying to do. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Mapbox is looking for a new head of design. We also have job listings from indeed.com. So head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly job alerts when there are new positions added to the job board. You'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. Join more than 14 million people who use MailChimp to not only send email newsletters, but to grow their businesses on their own terms. Start sending professional-looking newsletters to your clients today for free. Sign up at MailChimp.com. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and that's where Hover comes in. Choose your domain name from the hundreds of extensions out there, and start building that new project you've been waiting on today. Right now, you can get a .me domain, that's .me, for only $9.99 a year, which is pretty cheap. Use our promo code REVISIONPATH and you can save an additional 10% off your purchase. Speaking of savings, there's a sale that's going on right now in our store. Remember, we've got a store at revisionpath.com forward slash store. You can get t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, tote bags. It's the first sale of 2017 and you can save 17% off everything in our store when you use the promo code HAPPY17. That's H-A-P-P-Y-1-7. Uh, the offer ends on January the 12th, and I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out. We have a new iTunes review. This is from Glitterati Dwayne from Canada, and it's titled A Gold Mine of Black Creatives. Here's the review. I've been listening to Revision Path daily since discovering it. It's fascinating listening to the various paths black designers, artists, and tech professionals have taken in their careers. I rarely cross paths with black designers, so it's nice to know that designers of color exist and are doing some incredible work. Thank you to Maurice for making the effort to shine a light on us. Well, thank you, Dwayne, for leaving such a great review. Again, for all of you that are listening to the show, if you really like it, we'd love it if you would subscribe and leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. I'll read it right here on the show, just like I did with Dwayne's. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 41 patrons for a total of $277 per month. 
Again, thanks to all of you who have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes and free Revision Path goodies. So just head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge level started just $1 per month and it's a great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with Ann H. Berry, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at Cleveland State University. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Okay, so my name is Ann Berry, and I'm a design educator, I guess first and foremost. I guess I largely consider myself to be a creative because there are lots of things I'm interested in, but primarily a design educator. So I practice and I teach design. Where are you currently teaching design? I'm currently teaching at Cleveland State University. So this has actually been my first semester there starting in August. So, but I've been teaching before I started teaching at Cleveland State University. I taught at the University of Notre Dame in their art, art history and design department for about five years. So I have a lot of academic experience at this point, but this is a a newer venture for me to be teaching in a more urban setting and in an institution that is known for having a large population of first-generation college students. Okay. Have you found that that's changed your, your approach to the curriculum in any sort of way? Since this is my first year there, I've decided to just kind of do the curriculum as it currently stands to get a sense of of what the environment is like there and what the students are like. And it's interesting because I actually get that question a lot from people. And I guess what I would say is that there are a lot of things that are very similar about students, you know, at at this age, uh, millennials, from institution to institution. But I would definitely say that what I've found so far at a place like Cleveland State University is that these students certainly don't take their education for granted. You know, there's a wider range in terms of the students that we get in class, but it's been a much more diverse student body than I've had the opportunity to work with before. So that's something that I find to be really exciting and interesting. So it's been great so far. But in terms of things that maybe make these students a little bit different than the previous institutions I've taught at. I'm still learning to know them, so I'm still figuring some of that out. Uh, What classes are you teaching? So this semester I'm teaching a web class, and I'm also teaching an advanced typography class. And it's interesting because the advanced type class I'm co-teaching with one of my colleagues, Sarah Rutherford, And so we sometimes meet as one big group and sometimes meet in individual sections. And the class has about 28 students in it. So I'm really enjoying the experience. This is the first time I've I've co-taught a class like this. So it's something I'm really enjoying. And then the the web class, as I just mentioned. Um, And the next semester, I'll be teaching three courses. I'll be teaching an introduction to typography class a data visualization class, and then an independent, not an independent study, but a, it's more of a s- seminar class where the, the curriculum is dictated by a larger sort of project for advanced students. I noticed that there's this, I guess you have this concentration on typography. Why did you choose to, to focus on that? 
that sort of happened by, in some ways, by default for me. When I was actually a grad student at Kent State University, I had the opportunity to take a letterpress class with Eric May, who passed away several years ago now, but was just one of my all-time favorite human beings on the face of the earth. I took letterpress with Eric, and then I also took a calligraphy class with him. And when I graduated, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I really did not have a strong background in type. And so it was really through this calligraphy class, through letterpress, as a graduate student, mind you, that I began to really appreciate and understand the beauty of type and letter forms. And so that was something that I was already sort of interested in. But then when I started teaching at Notre Dame, I was basically the type person, the typography queen, as I'm still sort of sort of known, because that was kind of my class that I taught every semester that I was there, basically. And so I began to, you know, I already had this appreciation for typography, but teaching it as a, you know, within academic curriculum helped me appreciate it even more, because it's my job to help students appreciate some of these subtle nuances, right? Mm-hmm. And to think about type as image and the power that can come from words without a lot of whistles and bells. So the essence of design, in my mind, is really about letters and words and typography. And I'm guessing you've looked at some of my thesis stuff, my thesis work, which focused a lot on typography because you know I was looking at examples of how type worked within the civil rights movement, right? So everything's basically been designed, and that includes signs that say whites only, colored. So the way we use words, the way we use design can be exclusive as well as inclusive. And I think that there's something very powerful about just the words themselves and the letter forms and how those communicate. So, you know, that there's more to design than just typography, certainly. But to me, type is at the essence of what really the foundation of what design is and how it becomes such a powerful tool for communication. I remember when I first heard about you, I think this was from a post that you had on Goshen Commons. I think it was a blog that was. Yes. Yes. And Goshen, and it was it was a post about kind of the power of of words and typography. So that's, I really like that explanation that you gave about how it's at the essence of design, because I think what maybe a lot of modern designers, and when I say modern, I mean maybe web, product, et cetera, when they think about design, it's more about visuals and less about type or typography. Right. But yet it's still such an important building block of even just our understanding of what we do. Absolutely. And I think, especially in this day and age, you can't underestimate the power of language. And as designers, we can influence essentially how language is communicated, right? And it's interesting because this past weekend, I had the opportunity to hear Ellen Lupton, who is a designer and design educator. She has a twin sister named Julia Lupton, who's also an academic. So the two of them gave a presentation at the University of Notre Dame, which I was able to see. And one of the things Ellen Lupton has said, uh, so she's, of course, written books on typography, and I'm drawing a blank on the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of, typography is what language looks like. And I think that's a really helpful visual for me 
because I think it's a way to bring people together through typography, if that makes any sense, that however far apart we may be in terms of our native languages, that typography gives us a forum for really looking at at all of these different languages as something very visually beautiful and meaningful. So I think that that's that's kind of the way I think about it as well. I, I just think there's a lot of power in words, and maybe we underestimate that sometimes, but the influence that words can have, I think, is very powerful. I know for the show I've always wanted to have a typographer on or someone that creates typefaces, and it's been been a little difficult. Mostly I've been able to find letterists, you know, hand right. letters or something like right. that, but not people that will actually create typefaces. Right. And certainly when we think about typefaces, it's not just fonts, which, you know, that's kind of what designers right. are, are conflating the two typefaces and fonts. But I know of, of Joshua Darden and mm-hmm. I know of Terry Biddle, who is in Washington, D.C. Oh, actually, no, let me take that back. I know three. Third one is... Kevin Karanja, who's a designer in Nairobi, Kenya. I don't know if he's going to make any more typefaces, but I know he sort of got prominence for making an African-themed typeface called Charvet. This was maybe about, oh my goodness, maybe about four or five years ago, I think. I actually had the opportunity to sit in on a lecture by a type designer. This was several months ago now, and it's definitely a different kind of practice. I mean, it's all design, right? But it's very, you know, the, the level of detail that you have to have is pretty impressive. And in and of itself, I mean, it's, it really is a craft that I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate fully. So that's one of the reasons why I enjoy teaching typography to students, because it presents an opportunity to really focus on the minutiae, right? Of of letter forms mm-hmm. and appreciate them in and of their own right as a, you know, obviously letters make up words and words create language and, and hold meaning for us. But even appreciating these forms just as forms, I think there's beauty in that as well. One of my bucket list design items that I would love to do is create a sweet typefaces, maybe as a foundry, I would suppose, but Make just a suite of typefaces based off of black movies. Oh, wow. That I would, would love to do that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever decide to, to try it, man, count me in. That would be awesome. That oh, would yeah, be a lot of fun. Because I remember, I mean, you know, growing up, I watched a lot of, of black movies, older black movies, current black movies. Uh, the first movie that, that immediately comes to mind for me that I would want to create a typeface around <laughs> is boomerang oh, that's the, that's uh, the with first eddie murphy. with eddie murphy yeah and the reason for that is one i mean it came out in 92 i was probably way too young to really appreciate it as i do sure. now as an adult but it's one of the first movies i remember seeing black people in a professional creative sense right. you know eddie murphy is an, is an advertising executive and halle berry is in it too right yeah halle berry's you know? in it Mm-hmm. Joffrey Holder's in it, you know, so you, you get to see people in a more creative, well, creative and professional, because at the time, right. I think right then in the mid 90s, it was there were a lot of different representations of blackness that we're seeing in film. But that was one that right. sort of, I think, started off that kind of uh, era of black films where you are, you know, pictured as professionals. But 
you got to see right. them work, you know, right. you got to see them right. work right. and come up with ideas. And, you know, Hallie works with the kids and they're creating art with referencing Romare Bearden and all. And you just don't see that. Right. You, you didn't see that. Right. And so if I right. made a typeface, I would want to, to design it around Boomerang. I'd want like a strong, you know, like geometric masculine form for Marcus and a, a nice script for Jacqueline or something a little more quirky for Angela. You know, I've always had that idea kind of bouncing around in my head. That's a really fascinating idea. I mean, because I think you're exactly right. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned Bearden because I was inspired. I actually wrote a, uh, an art history paper when I was in graduate school about his work. So I was essentially tying him together with some of the, the black caricature topic that I, issues that I was researching at the time and how important he in particular was in terms of representing images of blackness in a positive way. So that's really, what a fascinating idea though. That sounds like it would be a, a fun project. If I ever start learning, the thing is, there's not a lot of great typeface creation tools. I'm on Windows, so that's probably why. But there's not a lot of oh. great type <laughs> type creation tools for that because everything I see is, you know, Mac only. I feel like I need to learn how to use a Mac if I really want to create <laughs> a typeface, which seems to be the that's just kind of how it is right now. Hopefully, that will change. Sure, sure. I've been thinking about it. I've got some pages where I've sketched out letter forms and stuff, but nothing that's, that's awesome. nothing concrete just yet. I can't believe I'm actually, I mean, I'm, it's good because I'm telling it. I'm actually putting it out yeah. there. So now I have yeah, to, to actually follow through I with it. Through. <laughs> have you, have you seen the documentary Helvetica? I yeah. know it was really, okay. Well, well, one of the things that's great about that documentary is the way they talk about letter forms, right? So you've got, you know, some of these design greats like Eric Speakerman and Massimo Vignelli talking about, how you design these letter forms and how you you start out with shapes like O's and how those can build into D's and B's and, you know, the process for creating a system of type that works together. So, you know, it's totally doable. It's totally doable. It's on my list. I'll get to it. I definitely (laughs) want to get to it eventually. So we're talking, of course, this is, uh, we're recording this for people that are listening, we're recording this not too long after the election. And so, I know that there's been a lot of emotions and feelings about what's been going on. And one of the things that I asked, you know, kind of prior to this interview, I always ask this for guests that are on. I ask kind of what do they want the takeaway to be? And you mentioned something around, I guess, was sort of around the role of stereotypes in advertising and design and how those influence us culturally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Just to give you a little bit of background, when I was in graduate school, I did sort of this independent research project on black caricature. And part of what you have to understand is that when I was coming up as a designer, I didn't know any other black designers. The only black professor I'd ever had in my life was my own dad. I attended a a small liberal arts college here in Indiana, and I had my dad for black history, believe believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole other story. But I started graduate school wanting to essentially understand my own experience. I had no concept really of where other black designers were, who they were, but I wouldn't have even known how to articulate it at that time. I think it was basically me just trying to understand my own identity as a black designer, not knowing any other black designers, not really having access to 
the work of other black designers because I never learned about them. Um, certainly not in, in school, not in any of my classes. So, you know, I had this opportunity to, to kind of research these images and of specifically black caricature. That was my starting place for trying to understand, you know, contemporary advertising. I'm also the kind of person who is very sensitive to visuals, right, to imagery, not unlike lots of other designers. And, you know, when I think back to the visuals of black people, I mean, the, the people that I remember sort of admiring, you know, Diana Ross, Whitney Houston, these, these beautiful black women, and trying to, I guess, just basically understand, yeah, where do black people fit in contemporary culture? And how are we represented? So this was, for better or for worse, looking at black caricature was my starting point for trying to understand this a little bit better. And I did start to, of course, learn about the work of artists like Michael Ray Charles and Kara Walker while I was researching this particular topic. It was a difficult period. I was trying to approach the material from an academic standpoint because I wanted to be able to step outside of myself, even in trying to understand my experience, I wanted to step outside of myself and look at the material as an academic, purely academic exercise to understand it better. But it was really hard and difficult to do that. And it did take an emotional drain because I was looking at these images day after day and reading about them, and it was really pretty difficult. But it also, I think, was still an important process for me to appreciate, again, to understand how these caricatures that started hundreds of years ago, that were created hundreds of years ago, how those are still very pervasive in contemporary culture, how they outlast it. I mean, I shouldn't use the word outlast, but how they have, have continued to thrive, in fact. And one of the reasons that I've been thinking about this topic again um, is, and I think I mentioned this to you earlier, Maurice, I call it the age of Trayvon Martin, you know, where we have these police shootings of unarmed black men. And to me, there is this direct correlation between, or direct connection, I should say, between how these people are perceived and how they're talked about and these old stereotypes that we think are really part of the past. And I think that that's one of my biggest frustrations is that, you know, we talk about the brute caricature or the mammy caricature or the piccaninny as though it's something from a long time ago, that they're outdated stereotypes, when it seems pretty clear to me that, you know, that maybe they've morphed a little bit, but they are still very much part of our collective consciousness, I guess in terms of how we perceive black people in particular. So certainly there are caricatures of other groups, but I spent most of my time focusing specifically on, on black Americans. And so I don't know if that answers your, your original question, but, but this is something that's been on my mind, particularly because as a designer, you know, that the only images you really see of African Americans are negative portrayals, right? It's influential in a way that I think people have really underestimated. So now some of these same, when you hear the way people talk about black Americans or just black people in general, these descriptors as being lazy, dangerous, I mean, these harken back to these old stereotypes. So that means that, that these old stereotypes have really taken a hold. 
of all of us, have influenced all of us. And so I, I think you can't ignore that. No, that's true, especially when I think about, or, or I think even when anyone really thinks about kind of modern perceptions of what African-Americans are through media that is not black media. So, for example, right. a few years ago, LeBron James and Giselle Bündchen on the cover of Vanity yes. Fair. Yes, mm-hmm. Athletes, even now athletes in their roles through speaking out with social justice and how the the backlash is that they should just, you know, they should just play. They should just be these dumb jocks playing or right. even black women and their right. hair when it comes down to athleticism like Serena Williams or Gabby Douglas or Simone Biles. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. All of that is rooted in, in my mind, and I guess I should, should own it and say, and in my opinion, <laughs> is rooted to these old stereotypes. And one of the things that sort of came to light or something that I came across, again, back while I was in graduate school, was a poster for the 85th annual Art Directors Club, Art Directors Association Call for Entries. And it's, I don't know if you've seen it, Maurice, but it's an image of basically Ronald McDonald, only it's a, it's a black man as Ronald McDonald. And it says, pimp my brand. I remember got, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember yes, he was like yes. decked out in gold with the rings and the chain. Yes. I remember that. Yes. So it's Art Directors Club. That's what it was. Art Directors Club, So it yeah. was there, it was a poster for their, their call for entries. And, you know, I'm looking at this and... I don't even know what to make of it. There are so many, it's just wrong in so many ways, but I think that it, that was also a reflection of the lack of diversity within design and advertising. And obviously there are black designers out there. There are African Americans out there who are involved in advertising. But again, you know, these, these stereotypes have become so insidious and so powerful in many ways that you know, somebody produces this and thinks it's okay. And you mentioned that ad with LeBron James. You know, I think there's part of us wants to say it's not that big of a deal. People are blowing this out of proportion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all I can think about is how all of these stereotypes originated. So I've done the reading. There's a really great book that I want to mention by Marilyn Kern Foxworth called Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben, and Rastus, Blacks in Advertising Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. And, you know, this is kind of an old book now. It was published, I think, in the 1990s. But it is a really great resource in terms of understanding how these stereotypes originated and then how they have morphed and changed and how they are still very much with us. So to me, even when, you know, when I see these advertisements that come out now, yes, they have a history. They have a context. They didn't just come out of nowhere. And so as much as people just want to write it off as some of us being overly sensitive, to me, what I see is a connection, right? I don't see this as an aberration that somebody just wasn't thinking and came up with something and it was put out there for everybody to see. To me, it's a reflection of what we have been socialized to think, how we have been socialized to perceive certain groups of people. And so to me, it's more of a systemic thing. Maybe that's a better way of articulating it. I see it as being a very systemic manifestation of, you know, something that we haven't addressed. I'll make sure that we have a link to that book, too, in the show notes. That sounds really, really interesting. That sounds like a really yeah. good show. 
Yeah, there's a, actually a forward in it by Alex Haley. And there is, it's really interesting. You can tell it's a little bit dated because, you know, she talks about Bill Cosby, but even, you know, regardless of the legal issues around him right now, you know, the Cosby show, many of us, you know, children of the 80s, we grew up, that was the first time we'd really seen African Americans as normal people living everyday, semi-normal, living everyday lives on television. And I think we need to, to acknowledge that. Yeah. Given, you know, that sort of insidiousness with these stereotypes, especially now in this particularly turbulent post-election time, where do you see the role or, or what do you see as the role of designers now? I definitely come from the kind of background and perspective where I see that my abilities as a designer, they should be used towards advocacy. They should be used towards some making some sort of positive difference. And I certainly accept that not every designer feels that or agrees that that they are committed to, to doing that, doing the same. So that's, that's a standard that I hold for myself. But I also think that there's a basic awareness that if you consider yourself to be an educated person, especially within design and advertising, that at bare minimum, you should, have, you should be aware of some of these things and how detrimental they can be within design and advertising. And I think for me, the struggle is, so I care very deeply about these things because I feel that I'm very directly affected by them. And what's challenging is knowing that I can't convince everybody else that this is, that this is something that should be important to them as well. But I think that that's, that's kind of where the challenge is and something that I'm still trying to think through. So how do I make a positive contribution and how do I try and help influence in a positive way, other people who, who might not know any of this, who might not be aware that these stereotypes have been pervasive for hundreds of years. And so I think that that's one way in which my role as an educator has become very important and valuable to me. I'm not trying to brainwash students by any means, but I'm simply trying to put the information out there for them to make them aware and then what they choose to do with that information is up to them. But I do feel a responsibility to say, you know, as part of your design education, you need to understand that here's the history of design. So, you know, we have these great books like The History of Design by Philip Megg. So we have, we certainly have those textbooks that paint a wide picture for us in terms of you know, putting design in, in historical context. But I think when it comes to things like, you know, negative caricatures and, and racial stereotypes, that's something that tends to be missing from the narrative. And so I think that as a person of color, I've, as I just said, you know, I, I feel a particular responsibility to make sure my students are at least aware of this. What they choose to do with that is up to them. To do with that information is up to them but I certainly feel a responsibility that they know about this because I didn't know about it. Mm -hmm. Right. As I mentioned earlier, like I really started to get into this topic as a way to understand my own experience. So 
I think I veered off from, from the question you asked, but, but essentially I'm trying to figure out now, okay, so what do I do with this information? Because I don't want to simply emphasize the gloom and doom and all the ways that this is bad and negative. Right. I want to figure out, okay, so how do I for myself and for my students use this information for something positive? And that's where I think that artists and designers, you know, at least again, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I have a responsibility to try and subvert these negative images and stereotypes that are out there. And how I do that is still, specifically, how I do that is still a question, but I definitely feel that sense of responsibility. And I would hope that other designers would care as well, but I can't make that assumption. And I know that it doesn't impact everyone in the same way that I feel that it impacts me I guess this is where building empathy becomes really important, mm-hmm. not just as a, as a design tool to understand users, but as a way to get fellow designers to also understand that this is important, especially now, because yeah. it is, you know, design, you know, we're, we're not brain surgeons, we're not rocket scientists, but we still, man, we, we can still wield quite a bit of power in terms of the messaging. And that bears out in these examples of design and advertising that, again, have have become very powerful tools in shaping the way we perceive other people. So I guess if I had to like sum all of that up, I would say I feel a calling to try and help other designers understand why they should care about this. Do you feel that your students are being receptive to that? I think so. I mean, it's, it can be challenging because most of the students that I've worked with up until now have been white students. And I, I should say too, so my dad is black, my mom is white. So I've always sort of had the ability to kind of see and understand both sides, let's say, okay. and have a sensitivity to, you know, to where white students are coming from and have a sensitivity in terms of where students of color are coming from. And I think what I've experienced as an instructor, and let me just say too, it's, you know, there, there aren't a lot of black design educators either. So there's a certain extent to which I always feel cautious, right? And saying what I think and expressing my views on some of these topics. But what I've learned, I guess, is that building up a rapport and building up a relationship with students is one way to really make progress because my students develop trust with me and it makes it easier to have some of these harder conversations. So it's not, you know, a matter of, you know, standing up in class day one and saying, okay, we're going to talk about design and race and, you know, kind of try and facilitate a conversation that way. I think it's more about building up a relationship with students over time where they feel safe with me and I feel that I can talk to them on the level about some of the responsibilities that they have. In fact, I'll just point to an example of um, a recent interaction I had with a former student of mine from Notre Dame. He's a white male. He's currently living in New York City. And I had just texted him saying, so he graduated a few years ago, but I texted him to find out if he was participating in in some of these protests um, in in downtown New York. And he said, no, you know, I'm not participating in them, but, you know, my cohorts and I are getting organized. We're trying to figure out what we want to do and how we want to respond. And he said, uh, basically, that this is a, 
you know, they're all becoming radicalized by what's happened um, since the election. But then he followed up and said, should I be participating in the protest? You know, he was kind of asking me, you know, what should I be doing? What is the appropriate response? And so we went back and forth a little bit. And I said, you know, I tend to be the, the, the person who's going to be out protesting. But I'm also the person who's going to be out voting. I'm going to be out canvassing before the election. So it's important to be active in a, in a lot of different ways. And then we kind of ended the, the conversation, me saying, I mean, I just called him out and I said, look, you are an ally for me and my kind. And that is a responsibility that you bear, right? This is a student of mine. This is somebody who's younger than me, somebody that I evaluated, somebody who was, in terms of hierarchy, who was under me, a student of mine, mm-hmm. but who I recognize has a lot more power than I do, Right. Um, he doesn't have as much teaching or work experience as I do. But I'm basically telling him, it is your responsibility to stand up and be an ally for people like me. And he readily accepted that. And there was certainly a note at which he, you know, he's feeling insecure about that, right? But he knows consciously that he has to be more aware of who he is and how he can, as I phrase it, use his design powers for good, and not evil. So that was kind of an interesting exchange, but I, I have no qualms about saying these kinds of things to my students, forcing them to confront some of these things. It's not necessarily, and not in a negative way. I mean, they, they are receptive to it because they understand what's at stake. And I would like to think that they understand what's at stake because they've built up a personal relationship with me. And this isn't an abstract idea anymore. This is about real people and not just me. It's about people of color, people from other groups that have been subjugated, that they develop this empathy I mentioned earlier and understanding and realize that they, in their positions of power, hold a responsibility, that some of this is on them. Yeah, because these are people that are in their community, even though it might not feel like it affects them, I guess, individually, it affects the community that they live in. Right. Right. And I also had an experience at Notre Dame. So I was teaching a design for social good course. And, you know, the class, there was a little bit of diversity, but the, and the class was all female students and mostly white female students. And again, these were students that I'd had in prior classes. So I already had a relationship with them. And so it makes it easier to talk with them about some of these issues that can be uncomfortable, right? to lead them through some uncomfortable conversations. And we did, in preparation for one of the projects we were working on, we did have a conversation about things like privilege and discrimination and how that works in a systemic way. And it was interesting because, you know, the way, just the way I led them through the conversation, you know, of course, I'm I'm very sensitive because I don't, I don't want students to feel that I'm telling them that they're inherently bad and evil because that, that's not the issue at all. It's initially at least more about awareness, like understanding that, the, understanding that you have a certain amount of privilege that maybe some other people don't have and understanding how that works. And it was really ended up being a beautiful moment for me at least to hear these students saying, I mean, they were really having these aha moments where understanding things like systemic discrimination, systemic racism. It may seem like a no-brainer for some of us, but for these students, it was really an important 
moment for them to raise their awareness that this kind of stuff exists and that they're part of this larger system. And so that, you know, it's not even necessarily about calling somebody a racist or somebody a bigot, but that there's also a level at which racism or bigotry at large operates on a much larger level and that they need to be aware of that. So it's possible to open people's eyes and for people to understand in a way that that doesn't threaten them or put them on the defensive. But again, I think that that it's built through a relationship over time where you can start to have these conversations in a way that, you know, there's already trust there. So people are more open to to thinking about and talking about some of these things that, that maybe are not comfortable to talk about. Yeah, they're definitely not comfortable to talk about from even, I think, from what I've seen, even the most minor of, I don't even want to call it an infraction, but I've noticed even saying something super minor can sometimes just set someone off in a very unexpected way. Oh, yeah. It's like a powder keg sometimes. But having the conversation is important because I think, you know, like you said, it helps. It really helps just move the conversation along. It helps both parties reach a level of empathy about what the other person is feeling. And I'm glad to hear that designers are not only sort of being radicalized by the moment, like they're realizing what's at stake, but also... I would say your role as an educator in informing students that this is, you know, this is part of your community. This is the world that you live in. And it's right. it's not something that your design skills divorce you from in any sort right. of way. Um, right. Certainly, I think as we hear about like the proliferation of fake news slash propaganda on, right. on platforms like right. Facebook and things like that, it also sort of ties in what you said before with uh with typography and with words having meaning, it ties in the power of design. These fake news sites and things, these are designed efforts. Right. And the, right. the intention clearly from the design is working because it's obfuscating the public from knowing what's real and what's fake to the point where public trust in media is at an all-time low. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, I think... You know, one of the challenges in in teaching right now is helping students to be more critical of the information that they're absorbing. And I think, again, you can't underestimate how much this information has influence over us. I think, especially when it comes to something like advertising, you know, we like to think that we're not influenced and we're not affected by what we see and hear, that we're intellectually savvy and so we can see beyond these messages that are coming at us, but it's amazing how much this information, whether we're seeing it um, in terms of images or reading it, in terms of fake news, how much that can influence the way we start to, to think about things. And again, I'll just go back to the example of when I was in graduate school and doing this independent research project on black caricature I was working with these images day in and day out, and I actually fell into a mild depression over the period of weeks that I was, you know, studying and reading up on this information. It was hard to see these images and divorce myself from what they mean and what they meant. And what ended up happening on a subconscious level is that my studio space, in the grad studio, I started putting up photos of my black family members in my studio space. It's almost as though I needed that as a, as an antidote to these 
images that I was seeing. Because again, even though I was trying to approach the material from an academic mindset, there's a very visceral, emotional level at which, you know, these images and these words start to reach us, whether or not we're even aware of it. So I think that that's one of the reasons why it's important to sort of address this um, and address some of these images that, that we're seeing because precisely because we think it's not a big deal. People are being overly sensitive. And again, to me, there's a thread. There is a connection over hundreds of years from what existed back pre-Civil War even to where we are now. The level at which people just want to brush it aside and say it's not a big deal, to me that says we're not really willing to confront what this means or how it's affected us right? and how it it influences our prejudices about other people. Because it really kind of, you know, makes you re-examine what you might have thought to be true for years, for decades. It sort of shakes you to your core to think that the thing that you thought was true is not true. And it's it's part of my language. It could be a complete mind fuck. Right, right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, the term for the year, right, is gaslighting. So, you know, even though we know there are certain things that have happened, right, certain things that have happened, certain things that have been said, we keep hearing from Trump and his surrogates that, no, that wasn't said. No, that didn't happen. Right. When, in fact, they did. And And it's documented. Yes, it's (laughs) documented. It's documented. And yet we're still trying to rewrite history. And I think that that is, I will say too, that that's, you know, again, as, as somebody who's mixed, I, you know, strike this balance all the time between what I know and understand as a white person and what I know and understand as a black person, however weird it may, <laughs> may sound it, to articulate it that way. But I think that the, the times that I feel most far away from, let's say, the part of me that is white and my friends and connections that are white is when it comes to the impact that these images have and the way African-American people, black people in general are represented and how that has affected the way we are perceived. It's hard to really articulate that to people who haven't been presented in such a negative way. Right. So it's, it's that, you know, I'm sure (laughs) you've had those moments where, you know, when the news, there's a reporting that somebody has been shot. It's like, oh my God, I hope that wasn't a black person who was involved in the shooting because we know, right. That every black person will be, be perceived as being the same dangerous, violent, not to be trusted And so constantly having to fight against these stereotypes, I guess that's what I'm trying to say is that that's one way in which my experience as a black person is very different than my white counterparts. So I grew up middle class. My dad grew up poor in the South. He was a migrant worker. My mom grew up white middle class from Ohio. It's actually really interesting because she, you know, just to hear their story of how they met and... But yeah, the times that I feel most apart from the part of me that is white is, and and the experiences of my friends who, you know, again, I I grew up middle class, Indiana, small Midwestern town, 
Um, my experience is very similar to my white counterparts, but the points at which I feel very much at a distance from them is when it comes to these kinds of issues, because they haven't had to grapple with what that means. The things that we're talking about now are how that, you know, your life is constantly trying to prove that you are an able person, that you are not dangerous, that you are, you know, X, Y, Z, that you're a capable individual and you can make positive contributions. You're fighting against these negative stereotypes. I mean, that, that's just something that they haven't had to grapple with. I would like to think, you know, and, and you know, going to, to what you said about that insidious nature of how these stereotypes persist, I, I think if there's one, if you can say a positive thing out of it, is when I think about the current generation of children that have been born within the past 10 years or so, They've only known, for example, a black president. Right. And so that image of them, and I know we're, I mean, not to make this, for people that are listening, not to make this political, I'm looking more, you know, I'm looking further than that. But for them, that possibility model of what they can be is something that so many of us have not had. Right. Right. It has not been the default. It has always been the other. Right. No, I've had, you know, white friends of mine who I don't have kids, but I have lots of friends who who have kids and they've said that same thing to me that they are so glad that for their children it's normal to have a black president with the name Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. That that is just kind of an everyday thing. And I do think that that is that's been really wonderful to see that happen and but that's also why I'm so distressed by what's happening now and that you see attention given to these white nationalists and white supremacists. It doesn't necessarily take us back in terms of the progress that we've made, but I think it's a reminder that some of this still exists and that we still have to be very active in confronting it, that it hasn't gone away just because we've had this amazing first family that has really been an inspiration. And even to tie it back to, you know, what you said earlier about the power of words, I mean, calling it what it is and not as the media is changing it. And, you know, so instead of white nationalists, it's alt-right as a, you know what I mean? Like massaging the language to make it so it's more normalized for people instead of calling it exactly what it is. Well, and there seems to be sort of this perverse, Again, I don't watch, I should say too, I don't watch TV news anymore. I stopped watching TV news um, many years ago, but I do read news articles online. It does sort of seem to be a perverse interest in, you know, the rise of these white nationalists. It's interesting, right? It can sell newspapers. So we're going to, yeah, tiptoe around what this actually is and make it, try to make it interesting to readers as opposed to calling these people out for what they are. That, to me, that's another thing that is, that is a little bit terrifying, that, that we normalize it in a way because it makes for a fascinating read or it makes for a fascinating clickbait. Mm-hmm. And you know, I also think about, I know that, again, I, my interests have primarily focused on black caricatures, but I know, of course, from reading, reading about journalists throughout the, the campaign season, that a lot of Jewish writers and journalists have been plagued by 
you know, all kinds of stuff from these white nationalists and white supremacists, um, like nasty tweets and, you know, they're being dogged by these clearly anti-Semitic caricatures. Yeah. So it's not just that this is something that affects African-Americans. I mean, that, that's where my attention has been because that is reflective of my personal experience, but certainly lots of other groups are experiencing similar things. And so, and even journalists who we, I think, at least for me, I kind of think that they're somehow protected from all of this, but they are feeling it on a daily basis. They are yeah. being bumped by a lot of this. Yeah. The, the, the fourth it's estate has always sort of had some level of protection. And if there's one thing that, we're seeing from the current president, president-elect, since we're, by the time this will air, he's not president yet. So what we're seeing from the president-elect, though, is this total, not just disdain for the media, but almost like a a rejection of the media. And so a lot of journalists are feeling shook because right. it's not what it used to be. Yeah, they can go and do this reporting, but is it making a difference? Is it reaching the right audience? And And quite frankly... It's a rough time for them. It's a rough time right. for journalists right now. Right. It's a, oh, right. Well, it's right. rough, but it's interesting because of how the, the dynamic is. Because clearly he wants to be able to control the message himself and not through a press pool or, or another media outlet, which is, right. you know, very right. authoritarian. Well, and then we start getting into to propaganda, right? And oh, yeah. again, this, this speaks to the power of symbols and imagery. And one of the other things you mentioned, my blog posts from Goshen Commons, and I should mention too, so Goshen Commons has come to an end, unfortunately, but I will be, I'm re in the midst of revamping my website and will include all of my blog posts from Goshen Commons on my updated website. But one of the things I also wrote quite a bit about was the Confederate flag. Because I think, you know, and especially coming from Indiana, it's a very hot, a very hot topic. And the, the reticence with which, I mean, people just don't want to acknowledge, my, this is my opinion again, that, that how problematic it is as a symbol. Like, to me, it's shocking when I see it. But there is an extent to which, you know, again, these people that I grew up with, people that I'm surrounded by and know they, it's almost as though they can't bring themselves to acknowledge what that symbol means. Mm -hmm. So there's a pressure to tolerate, you know, that this is a way for some people to quote unquote honor their Southern heritage, which to me is just a euphemism, right? And how yep. many of these people actually have roots in the South? I don't know. I mean, I have <laughs> roots in the South, but you know that my relatives are not flying Confederate flags. So I, I think it just becomes a bogus argument. It's one that is used to tolerate things that, you know, I can't stop people from flying Confederate flags. I, I don't want it to be my mission to go around and, and stop them from, you know, putting them on their cars or flying them outside of their homes. But I do think that when it comes to public spaces, when there are public events going on in the, in the downtown Goshen area, for example, that it's not okay for people to be flying these flags as part of a public event. Yeah. With respect to Goshen specifically, you know, there have been some challenges in terms of legally stopping it, but I just feel so strongly that if you are a community that espouses 
you know, that praises diversity because Goshen is actually a pretty diverse community. There's been a growing Latino population. And even, you know, you see there's a growing African-American population. It's pretty diverse. And the downtown area, you know, thriving local businesses. So it's got a lot of great things going on. But then there's this underlying layer of, of pushback, let's say, or backlash against progressive ideas and against diversity. So, and it pops up every now and then, you know, at, at sometimes at these public downtown first Friday events where these flags start to make an appearance. So in my mind, that's something that needs to be confronted. But I think for some people, it's a passing phase. You know, if we confront it, it's going to make it a bigger issue. Yeah. So, but to me, yes. And, and maybe it's because I'm a designer and because I think in very visual terms and understand, you know, you look at a swastika, right? Very powerful symbol. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, there, there isn't a whole lot of differentiation there. And we, you know, while it may be true that we, we as people give these, these symbols power, you, you can't ignore the power that they have. I, I, I don't think, I think, it is. It becomes detrimental when you find excuses to tolerate, and even you know Steve Bannon. I don't know. I just have to say because I'm very politicized. I have to admit, you know, my dad's a political scientist, and so I grew up having a lot of conversations around politics. Even though I certainly certainly would never sell myself as a political scientist, I'm interested in talking about these issues, but. You know, when we look at somebody like Steve Bannon, in my mind, we've already surpassed political philosophy or ideology. To me, we start moving into the realm of like, what does it mean to, to have respect for fellow human beings, mm-hmm. right? So it's not even, at that point, it's not even about party. It's not even about Democrat versus Republican. So it's distressing to see ways in which even that, again, is being sort of normalized that you know, it should be shocking to everyone, regardless of their political identification or how they, you know, their political views, it should be shocking that somebody who has espoused white nationalist views, who is, I think, I think it's fair to call him a white supremacist, certainly anti-Semitic, that we aren't shocked that he has been, you know, that the president-elect wants him to serve in a capacity as a senior strategist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that should be shocking to everybody. So what does that say that, that it's become, it's been turned into a Democrat versus Republican issue? That right. if you are against Steve Bannon, that you're just against the president and the Republican Party. And to me, that's entirely the wrong conversation. But at any rate, I think that these, these symbols certainly play a role. And for me, the, the, and the Confederate flag becomes one of them. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's, we're walking away from the conversation about how that flag has been used and in what context and how it has justifiably made people feel scared uh, for good reason. And it's been, you know, it becomes this euphemism for, or we talk about it in terms of, of Southern heritage, not unlike these stereotypes that we see we step away from it. It's like we don't want to confront what this means or we're not willing to confront what it means. As you mentioned that, that just reminded me of an interview I did with Gus Granger. Uh, Gus Granger is a 
a design principal. He owns a firm in Dallas called 70 KFT. And last year, they were tapped by WNYC Studios to do a redesign of the Confederate flag. I think I saw images of that or remember reading something about it. I mean, it seems if I'm remembering correctly, they came up with these beautiful... Well, go ahead. I, I think I know what you're referencing. Yeah, they um, came up with the... You're right. They came up with... Um, they had a whole campaign where they showed... The redesign was basically like an intersection of red and white bars. Not, yes, not, yes, unlike, yes, yes, yes. not unlike the actual Confederate flag, but in a more right. modern way that's sort of divorced from the history of what we know the image as throughout the years. And the responses to it were nuclear in, in terms yeah. of in terms of the level of hate and vitriol and and you know if Gus is listening I you know you can certainly correct me on this but I mean I think he was even personally to his studio getting you know hateful messages just for approaching this as a design challenge right Right. You know, and there were all these Southerners that were saying, oh, you know, these neo white latte sipping liberals and, you know, that whole thing. It's like we're just looking at it as a design problem. We are not actually doing this. It is just an exercise. And it's it's like if you're getting that angry over even just like peeling it back a little bit. Oh, my God. It it, it makes me wonder if we are ever going to have the capacity to unpack these things. Right. And it's, you know, it, another area that this relates to is, you know, these symbols for sports teams, right? Again, that's affected my hometown, Goshen, Indiana, recently changed, the high school changed its mascot. And oh my goodness, the discussion around all that. It took years. What was the you mascot? Know, I can't even remember. It was a Native American white men. There were two local middle schools that then converged into one, but one of the local middle schools had been, the name was white men, but that was changed into town, you know, and the schools came together, it became Goshen Middle School. But then the high school also had, Jordan, can you remember? Sorry, one of my former students is sitting here in the studio with me. I don't think he can hear me. I can't actually remember, (laughs) remember, believe it or not, but it was, it was a Native American and so there were members of the community who were trying for years to get this changed. And it just was like a roadblock every step of the way. And so they finally changed it. They finally got it changed. But, oh, my goodness, I was around for some of the school board meetings where they discussed this as an issue. And the pushback against changing the mascot was incredible And here you had a lot of people in the community who had grown up here, who had gone to high school with this particular symbol, this Native American symbol. And it was part of, they would describe it as being part of their identity. I mean, which was just fascinating to me. For them, this was personal. It was part of their identity. So how can you take that away from them? Meanwhile, you had members of the community who themselves were Native American or who had Native American roots saying, this is really harmful to us and our community. Please don't, you know, please change this. But nobody wanted to hear that or even appreciate what that meant. So, you know, it says something to me when you're in the same room with somebody who is saying to you, this hurts, it's harmful. Can we just come up with something else that more of us can agree on? 
you know, I don't think that's a lot to ask, but it shows how far apart we are on some of these issues that we can't even listen to somebody who's in the same room who is talking directly to us and saying, I'm hurt, I'm in pain. And it's not because people are that mean. Even my frustrations with the election and knowing that a lot of people I know voted for Trump, at the end of the day, I think most people are decent human beings. And even in the wake of the election, I've experienced some really great moments with a lot of people in unexpected ways. So, so I think there's a lot of hope in that. But when it comes to certain issues, right, certain specific issues around these symbols of all things, symbols that we are ready to fight tooth and nail over them and unwilling to admit to ourselves, you know, that, that we're, I guess, or, or even acknowledge what somebody else is saying and that, that is valid. So again, this, you know, this all goes back to empathy, but it, but it does speak to how powerful these symbols have become. Absolutely. It really, really does. One other thing that I, I just thought of, Simil- I wouldn't say it's similar to what I mentioned with Gus, but I know before you were talking about black caricatures, and it reminded me of this art series that this artist in, uh, in Houston did called Gullah Sci-Fi Mysteries. And what he did was he would paint these, these, you know, these large, they would almost look like comic book covers or graphic novel covers of black stereotypes. But I guess he sort of would, would change these racial archetypes into science fiction in a way. And so, like, for example, one of the depictions was Mammy, but it was spelled M-A-M-E, like Mam-E. Ah, um, interesting. And the weapons that Mammy used were a broom and a frying pan. And she would fight other racial stereotypes like Uncle Remus or right. Chef Rastus. I remember at the time when it came out, I thought it was fascinating because it's taking yeah. something that was this, you know, weird, pervasive racial stereotype and turning it into science fiction which you know is is something that when you think about it in the general kind of collective it's real but not real which in a way is kind of how we or how caricatures are perceived in in a similar fashion right no that's really fascinating i mean i think i'm always interested in ways in which people are grappling with this imagery i mean even you know artists who were working in the the 1980s and 90s for example were you know Aunt Jemima was certainly prominent in some of these works. So I'm always fascinated by artists who have taken these stereotypes and, you know, tried to to do something interesting with them in terms of fighting back against these stereotypes. Again, I I think I mentioned Michael Ray Charles earlier. He's an artist who has has certainly attempted to do that in his work. And I know that he... (laughs) I'm sure some people perceive him as, or his work, I should say, as being controversial in that respect. But I was really drawn to his work. I still am. In some ways, it really confronts you as the viewer with these images in a way that is not polite at all and prevents you from normalizing something that that I think we have a tendency to want to normalize or to, to explain away or to put into context. But my feeling when I look at, at Michael Ray Charles's work is, 
you can't do anything other than feel uncomfortable and recognize that, you know, that this is his, I guess, his way of articulating what he thinks about this imagery, but it forces you to confront that uncomfortable feeling as opposed to just accepting it as another image, as another message that's coming at you and that, yeah. you, you know, you can choose to ignore if you want to. We've had a, my God, this conversation has been fascinating. Um, <laughs> what are your hopes for 2017? You know, this has been a new year for me at, at Cleveland State University. So, you know, just for myself in terms of my teaching situation, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to, to get to know my students and find my place at a new institution. My colleagues have been really, really wonderful so just feeling more and more at home in Cleveland and at, at Cleveland State. I'm also hoping that, that I can begin to find a greater focus for how I want to take you know, my interests in this particular area and use them in a way that can create more productive conversation and more action around how, how do we respond to you know, the things that we want to change, how can we make some sort of positive impact? And I, and I don't mean to make light of design for social change either. I mean, I know that that's, that, that's kind of um, a popular phrase now, you know, designers want to do something positive, but, but I really mean that in a genuine way, because I do think that we do have a role to play as designers in, in making some sort of positive contribution. I know, Maurice, I shared with you some of the, the notes that our students wrote in response to the election and a number of them made comments on these post-its you know when when my colleague and I asked them well what are your you know what are your hopes for the future what are your fears how do you want to use your design skills to make a positive contribution you know some of the responses were very specific like I want to design information that helps people know what their rights are I mean that that's inspired me to think about what I want to take or what I want to do with, as I said, the information that I have, how do I turn that into something positive, something that will be productive? Because I will tell you, honestly, you know, this was, the election was, was devastating. I felt betrayed by my country, by the people around me. And so, you know, the, in the days since, I've gone back and forth between feeling like, okay, I need to, to, to listen to Toni Morrison. It's time to get to work and feeling like I don't want to do anything. I, I'm so distraught. I just want to sit here and feel the pain. But, but there's this call to really do something productive. And part of that is, part of that has, I think I've been inspired to a certain extent by the recognition by my students that they, that they are ready to fight and that they are interested in being more active. So in terms of, again, in my own personal work and research, because you know, diversity within design is something that I'm very much interested in. I'm in the thick of it, I feel, feel like oftentimes, and especially in education. How can I use what I have and use what I know to increase diversity or to reach more designers of color or bring more designers of color together? How can we use our ability to disrupt these negative messages that are have been perpetuated over such a long period of time and continue to influence the way we view one another. Well, Anne, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? 
as I mentioned earlier, I'm at Cleveland State University, so I can definitely, people can track me down that way. I am on Facebook. I took a Facebook break for a few years, but I'm back on again. But if they have trouble finding me on Facebook, certainly they can email me through my Cleveland State email address, which I said is, is easy to find via the, the university website. I'm getting my website back up, so hopefully by the time this podcast airs, that'll be available. That link will be available to them. All right. Well, Anne Barry, thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you for taking time <laughs> out of your day. I mean, this conversation went, it went places I wasn't expecting, which okay. is great. I hope for listeners that it will take them places and, and let them think about and consider things that they haven't considered before. Largely not just, you know, the power of what they can do with their design, but about how design has been used, you know, consciously and subconsciously throughout the years and how we have a role in kind of changing those perceptions and everything. I mean, just so much of the stuff that you've mentioned. I feel like this episode might have to come with Cliff's notes. I don't know. Like it was it was just a lot of really in a good way. I don't mean in a bad way, in a really good way. Sure, a lot of sure. awesome information. So thank you so much for taking time to come out and be on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Maurice. It's been great to talk with you. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Ann H. Barry and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ann and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as showing how internal design critiques work at Facebook, sharing resources about virtual reality and other cutting-edge tech, and by giving away great tools and resources like their design prototyping tool Origami Studio, popular device templates, and even diverse hands for mock-ups. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 14 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to grow their businesses, recapture sales, and make money in their sleep. And who doesn't want free sleep money? Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. With free private domain registration and your choice of domains across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there, how can you turn that down? Save 10% off your first purchase by using our promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really, really, really helps the show by not only bumping us up in the iTunes rankings for design podcasts, but it lets more people hear all these wonderful and fantastic interviews. And I'll read your review right here on the show, just like I did with Dwayne's. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. The new year is here, so if you're looking to get that side project off the ground, refresh your business website, or start some email marketing, visit our website at yepitslunch.com and send us an email. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are told in their own words. 
So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.